Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Leading Your International School podcast. This is your host, Vikas, and you're listening to the show that not only brings you practical tips and practices to make your leadership journey a memorable one, but also lead by example. Today, we have amongst us as our guest, the Chief Operating Officer and the Chief Human Resource Officer of Moskowitz LLP, Warren Cook. And before I invite Warren, I need to tell you something very interesting. And I was going through the website of Moskowitz LLP and Warren's wonderful page came up. The thing which struck me the most was when I read the lines, as it said, that Warren has expertise in synthesizing the most important aspect of Moskowitz LLP, and that is the people or human resource, the people who work there. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our theme for today's podcast. So before further ado, I would like to invite Warren to introduce himself and talk to you. Welcome, Warren, and over to you. Great. Thanks so much, Vikas. I really appreciate it. Uh, great to be here uh, this evening with you. Um, just real briefly from a background experience, and then we'll get into uh, some of Vikas's questions for me. Um, so I've been in HR leadership uh, almost 27 years now. Uh, as Vikas said, presently, I, I lead the operations and human resources aspects of Moskowitz LLP. Um, you know, some of the boring things about my background experience, bachelor's in HR and MBA in project management, IO psychology, uh, industrial organization psychology. Um, but all that is really culminated together in these 27 years through my experience in pharmaceuticals and public service and, and uh, private and, and public sector and consulting is I really try to bring to every and each, each and every organization um, the concepts that really help thrive leaders grow their people and leaders be the best they can be in their roles, and then understand the strategy that are going to help them be successful for not only the business or the school or the entity they're part of, but really grow and develop people, which, you know, if you can develop your people, you're going to just be as successful as possible. So that's just a little quick piece about me. The rest you can read on the back cover of the book, of course, but uh, love to get into these topics today, Vikas. I think, thank you so much, Warren. That was quite an interesting and enriching background you check you which you did. Uh, just one thing which I thought I did not say in the beginning. Well, that was purposely a surprise. Warren is a co-author of the now published book, Leading an International School, and is also the author of the book, Applicant Interview Preparation. I am sure people across the world are so much, so much into this, and they would love reading both these books. The book, Leading an International School, can be got from our website, leadingyourinternationalschool.com, available on Amazon and LinkedIn as well as on uh, other websites, amazon.co.in, amazon.in for Indian users, and amazon.com as well. Moving forward, uh, Warren, you know, uh, and also let me tell my users, the chapter Human and School Development, chapter four from our book, is I think Warren's forte. And to begin with, I would read out a couple of sentences from that starting part, Warren, and that's where my first question comes from. The greatest assets of any organization, regardless of whether you produce products or services, are your people, your human capital. Now, my first instinctive query is, what does investing in people mean? Why do we say human capital? What is it to invest in people? Sure. No, no. Great question. And, and it's a great part. And just to your point about co-authoring the book, you know, it was a 
tremendous pleasure blending the business expertise, the academic expertise of Andre, and then bringing the people aspect of it. So uh, when we met, which is to, to your question, um, he had researched and learned a lot about this term, human capital. And when we first talked, I said, well, think about it. If you were a financial manager, financial expert, or responsible for the money in an organization, you're always thinking about how do you raise capital? How do you maximize your profitability? Everything around capital and finances. And I said, well, look at people. Well, how do you view the people in an organization, right? They're an asset. You hire them. You pay them. You may give them benefits. You may do a lot of things. Um, but a lot of organizations neglect the fact that they might be a, how strong an asset or how do you leverage that asset? So to me, investing in your people means that from before you even hire the person, are you thinking about ways to set that person up for success? And then once they come on board, you get into this cycle um, where you have to make sure that at every stage of that employee's life with your organization, are you doing everything possible, everything you can to give that person the tools, the resources, and the support to be successful? So if you as leaders do those things, you're going to build trust, build other things in that person, contribute to their professional development. And then there's this mutual relationship there that becomes very symbiotic where it's mutually beneficial, right? And that's how you invest in it. Just like you water your plants so they can grow and produce great fruits for you. Uh, you want to water and treat those employees with great care. Well, that's quite fascinating. Water the plants and treat the people like plants. And as they say, you know, recent science, uh, well, I don't know whether it's recent, must be old as well. It says that science research tells you that plants can cry if they are neglected. So I think people would also not feel great if they are not treated properly in an organization, isn't it? And I think if people are the greatest asset, then should the human resource or the HR have a seat at the leadership of the institution is it yes what is it not generally they don't though right so generally exactly <laughs> that's most why organizations globally right but i guess when you think of human resources and a lot of organizations especially a u.s base um they view hr and i'm gonna find you know the audience should find this funny they view hr as the principal not like a you know the principal of, a, of an international school they view it as that principal's office that when you're a bad student, you get sent there when you've done something wrong. So HR often has this tactical um, operational view uh, where they didn't have a seat at the table. And around the world, HR historically has been viewed not even as a human resources. It used to be viewed as personnel or the people team or just the people who hired or fired or determined pay or did discipline. And it was over the last few decades that uh, around the world globally through SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management and other organizations really promoted these strategies I talk about in becoming valuable to the leadership, right? Getting that seat at the table because we're able to demonstrate and show how various aspects of the, of the organization, of the school, of the business rely on the people. And if you don't grow them, if you don't develop them, if you don't invest in them, um, you can miss out. But there's other aspects I'm sure we'll get to shortly where they have to be strategic as well, right? You have to be strategic as that HR person. You can't just walk in and say, give me a seat at the table and not actually impact the overall success. Well, uh, I think the fire and hire was quite interesting when you mentioned here. And keeping that in mind, this reminds me that uh, along with the HR and the leadership, the principal, I think this uh, fire, that journey from the hire to fire is very much linked by or bridged by this understanding 
of the employee's life cycle and what it means for school leaders. So my next question comes from this only that why is this, why is understanding the employee's life cycle important for school leaders? Sure. So if if a school leader is working with, let's say they need a professor in a certain area or a teacher in a certain area of the organization, or maybe it's not an academic role, maybe it is a dean or something else in the organization from an operational perspective, um, if their view of that is, hey, HR, help me hire this person, and then they're never involved again, or they don't see any value in what happens after that, you really have a mismatch, right? You really have a mismatch in what should happen. And they may even neglect some of the critical parts in the life cycle as far as planning that workforce. So, you know, I highlight this in the text and I've been, I've been coaching and consulting leaders for years on this. You know, before you even make that hire, you have to plan out kind of what you want and why you want it and where it's going to go. And if an HR professional who has that seat at the table can work strategically with that leader and help them understand that, they can then help them understand well, after you plan them, then you have to onboard them. And after you do initial training, then you have to measure them and, and give them performance reviews and monitor their performance and develop them and give them education. And really, you're working through a cycle that as long as the person is engaged and as long as you're delivering throughout to help them grow as well, you should be getting you know that mutual contribution and, and uh, performance out of them. And this life cycle has to do with from hiring all the way to when they exit and maybe retire or they exit because they've left, whatever it may be. But at every stage, there's something going on with the employee that if that leadership neglects that stage, uh, you could have a disconnect and suddenly that person becomes uh, disengaged and may look elsewhere for employment or to develop their career. So that whole cycle is really critical to understand in it. And, you know, loyal employees are, are critical. Developing employees are critical, but it costs a tremendous amount of money to replace people. It's more cost effective to take good care of the people you have than it is to hire new people in most cases, um, unless they're so disengaged or it's a mismatch. You know, sometimes I go into organizations and the people there are not the right fit because the prior leadership might not have gone through this planning stage, right? Might, might not have identified what they really need for success. So. so I think the bottom line is prevention is better than cure, isn't it? And I think yeah. uh, uh, when we look at... Uh, the employee life cycle. There's a word you mentioned onboarding. That is very interesting because you know many a times there is a big I, I post that's a personal opinion that there is a big confusion between orientation and onboarding versus onboarding. And you know, majority of the times, once the orientation is done, that is considered the end. And then you just, yeah. you know, it's like now it's you and your game, your baby, go ahead. So I mean, you know, right. I think uh orientation is equally important, but onboarding is even more important, isn't it? What do you think? Yes. And, and I think I think there's a lot of confusion between the two because organizations I've worked in, whether it was Fortune 50 companies or small mom and pop uh, family-owned businesses, they felt that that you know first day, hey, here, here's, here's your office or here's your computer or here's your workstation. Bye. Good luck. Uh, that was the end of it. And yeah. that yes. really isn't effective at all. I mean, that's the term, right, thrown into the fire, right? How did you learn? Oh, I learned in the fire. But I view orientation as the human resources aspect of engaging a new hire, right? That team may have just brought that person on board. Um, they're the ones who made all the promises and commitment of how wonderful their job is going to be, right? Um, so they should be setting them up with the general or generic aspects of the university, of the school, right? They should be talking about the culture of the organization. They should be talking about the impact, the learning outcomes for the students, everything related to 
what any employee of the school should know. But when you move into onboarding, that's where you get into the job-specific training and support, where they're learning, you know, if, if I hire somebody and I'm the one delivering the training in an international school, I'll talk about the culture, I'll talk about the compensation, the benefits, the goals, the training, everything that might be involved for them and the support, but I'm not going to teach them the curriculum, right? That should be one of their mentors, or that should be who they're buddied up with, or that who should be the, the leader of that educational cha uh, chair. So, it's really about what is the ongoing process. And if you start learning from the beginning, like you just mentioned, because the, the cycle, it should be an endless ongoing cycle of training and development, right? I mean, most people, especially in the academic world, are lifelong learners. So we now move into, okay, we've onboarded them, we give you job-specific training, and then we should have a whole program throughout every year that's either refresher training, ongoing development, or ways to make them stronger teachers. Because these people, I mean, we just talked about, you know, having a seat at the table. And we talked about human capital and why they're, you invest in them. But some schools and some businesses, their differentiator in the market is not their product or service. It's their people. If you were going to go to a doctor, do you go to the doctor who has horrible bedside manner and treats you terribly and might fix, heal you? Or do you go to the one who really feels like makes you feel good, engages you, and then solves your problems? Same in anything. We're really driven, but a lot of our sales decision-making, a lot of our academic decision-making is emotion-based, which means people connections. I'm sure you've seen online and everywhere in the, all over the world for years where they say, people don't leave organizations, they leave bad bosses, right? Well, if you can flip that around, right, flip that around and say, wait, if we can develop great people, the students will love our professors, the professors and teachers will love our administrative leadership, and that just makes us a stronger organization to attract more students. Well, absolutely. I think uh, that's a very valid thing when you say people leave bad bosses. And that reminds me of that funny saying, which is to say that boss is always right. I don't know why, but, you know, I mean, maybe they all, maybe they just want the to be there. Customer is not always right. Neither yeah. is the boss. I mean, yes, the, exactly. you know, the, the best leaders out there are, in my experience, my humble experience is, the best leaders are the ones that they recognize they should hire people better than they are, right? Wow, whoa. Really absolutely. good leaders bring great skills together. They bring great assets together, and together they do more. If you have someone who just has, uh, I know everything, I have all the answers, they become insecure, they don't hire great people, and they certainly don't develop them. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I could write a whole book on just that, probably. <laughs> well, actually, the people who are real leaders, they actually know how to bring people together. And uh, I'm many times reminded of what Simon Sinek had said that, you know, those real leaders eat last. They speak last. And they actually are not, I mean, you know, they're there, but they're still not there. Without them as well not being there in terms of the, the their presence, in terms of I know it all, the team works to the best of their ability. They bring the strengths together. However, Warren, uh, all this idea of being able to build up a very good staff, very good team, very good human resource begins with that first initial step of that whole thing called the interview process. You know, the whole uh, interview preparation and planning and, and you know, there I, I, I was reading through the uh, book where you mentioned certain amount of activities which help in preparation and planning of the interview. I think because I remember when I had started 21 years back in this profession, interview was a one-shot thing. You know, you had one round and you met the principal, 
had interaction and that was it i still remember my own starting when i had finished just finished my college went to meet my uh, you know as an alma mater to my school school and i was told why don't you try and start teaching here i was like okay and then i was asked to prepare for a week and then when i came in a demo lesson and somehow the children liked my what i did and i was on but today 21 years down the line you have you know rounds after rounds so the you know the hr round the 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 form filling round then the expert round and so much you go round and round sometimes mm-hmm. but i think the preparation and planning for interview is of utmost importance and i would sure. request if you can throw some light on the activities which would make a school successful in hiring the right people through this process of sure. interview and interaction sure absolutely so you're absolutely right i think uh, in the world 20 30 years ago when you and i were finding our first jobs you kind of walk up shake hands they take a look at you and you're hired right i mean <laughs> you know that that was kind of happen if you if you had the courage enough to walk in the door uh pre worldwide web pre internet you know you kind of demonstrated who you were right then um but we're in a different world today right we've got the internet we've got more applicants than we know what to do with um we have skilled people and professionals coming from everywhere and anywhere um and so there's a tremendous risk in not planning for your interview process not planning long before you even post that job because you can find great people all over but you can also find people who will damage or be detrimental to your business right damage and detrimental to your school to your students and a bad hire is far worse than taking the right time and investing to make sure you make a good hire so you know from a planning perspective before you even post that job and before you you know hire anybody you really should be thinking about what are you hiring for and why you know just because uh someone in a position leaves doesn't mean that's the position you need to replace or historically people say oh uh vikas left uh i need to hire another vikas well n- n- are you sure was everything that person did perfect if you had to sit back and say wow what are one one or two things i'd like to see them do better do you want to hire someone that has those two attributes or characteristics or do you just want to settle and the other thing that i think is really important to to relate to planning is let's say the person who left that they want to replace was there 7 years Well, are you thinking about the role 7 years ago when you hired what the skills and qualifications were or are you basing it on how they left 7 years later with so much more experience, right? So there's a lot of gaps in how people think about hiring, right? Because they're neglecting the fact they say, well, when when they left, they did all these things for me. They were so amazing. Right, but that's after 7 years of experience. If you had to start at the beginning again, what would you hire? Do you raise the bar? You know, I think about uh the position of a bank teller or a cashier or uh positions that, you know, there's not a lot of room for movement or growth. So the person at the beginning of the process and the person at the end of the process, no matter how much they really learn, the role might not change very much. But in an academic setting and some other professional service settings, right? There's a lot that changes over those years. There's a lot of technology changes. There's a lot of responsibility changes. There could be curriculum changes, just strategies, techniques, everything. So one of the first things you have to do before you just run and post the job is plan: Is this position the right position? Right? Is these the right skill sets? Go back and look at that job description. And a lot of times, clients say to me, 
job description. What's that? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, it starts that whole cycle of me saying, well, if you don't have a job description that defines the role, then how do you compare a candidate to something? What are you comparing them to? Your memory, who you like, your biases? And then you've got to take them through a consistent process that you get to compare everybody fairly. Now, I'm not a proponent of five, six, seven levels of interviewing. I think that's way too much in this day and age. That perfect candidate who's waiting four months to get through the process is going to find a job somewhere else. But I do think there's value in having a few steps. I think that that first step that you engage a candidate in, and I always uh, you know, uh, refer to it as my behavioral interview stage, that's more like when we talked about orientation versus onboarding, right? You're trying to find out behaviorally, how do they perform their work? What are they about? What type of culture they've been involved with? What types of technologies? But just how do they work? What are their work ethics and behaviors? When someone gets through that stage, to me, that's when you involve those subject matter experts, the principals, the leadership, the administration, and you have that technical, more strategic, functional role, right? Because I don't necessarily need to know the technical piece, but someone should, right? And those two steps are really all I've really used in the last five or 10 years. Maybe if there's a larger organization where you then have an executive team, you might take your finalist and then say, hey, go ahead and evaluate it. But that depends on how much trust you've built with that executive leader. So if you've built a lot of trust and you've demonstrated you do good hiring, well, then you don't have to worry about it. You know, at, at the organization I'm with now with uh, our senior partner, uh, Steve Moskowitz, um, you know, the first hire or two I made, it was like, I want to be involved. I want to get involved. I want to be part of this. By the third hire and the next 20 some hires, yeah, go ahead. Right. Like, I, I, you did good. Keep going. So, you want to build that relationship by demonstrating good hiring. But it's that, it's that structure that helps you really determine did you find the right person? And you only know that if you define what you're looking for. I've gotten through some interviews with panels where they didn't have much structure. At the end of the interview, I walk, I look around the room and I say, all right, time to debrief. Do you like the person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, great. But can they do the job? I don't know. Well, isn't that why we're here? Isn't the interview about can they do the job? So, you know, I'd love the audience and the listeners to really think about it. A lot of people flip the decision making. They go, do they have a good personality? Are they a good fit? And then if they say, yeah, I really like them, they always say in their mind, Oh, well, then we'll teach them the job. That never works well. If you find someone who has the skills, the credentials, the experience you need, and then they also have the right culture, fit, and personality, you've just won across the board. You're not putting that square peg in a round hole. So that planning is critical through that process, as you, as you mentioned at the beginning of your question. And then that process really is taking them through having prepared questions, and having a consistent way, so you treat everybody fairly, having a consistent way to evaluate those candidates. I think uh, the word job description was very important because uh, the, the idea of first having a job description, then knowing what it is, and third, understanding and putting it across to the candidate and giving the expectations of why the person is, is there or the job has been advertised and what is expected to be is very, very critical. Uh, I think uh, you know what happened to the cost? It's kind of interesting too by default. So yeah. when I've been in organizations that have really well written job postings, now job postings different than a job description, job. but yeah, the postings kind of the advertisement. Yes. I've had candidates that are better candidates, or the pool, the applicant pool is more effective because people will self-select out. So if I have a job description that says looking for international school teacher, 
hours are this, you're going to get thousands of people apply because it just says teacher. Yeah. But if you have details of the curriculum, the style, the t- experience you're looking for, the subject matter, suddenly people read it and go, oh, that's not me. And they select out. So you can, by default, doing a really good job on that front end, get a better applicant pool before you even have to start talking to anybody or screening them. So. I think that's where the importance of uh, the desired and the required qualifications come into picture. And that's yes. where that's where the most successful hires happen. And, you know, uh, I, I want to share one thing with the listeners and Warren you that I think somehow I feel this name human resources can also be reworded. And I, I feel happy about my own school, which calls it people and culture rather than human resource, because people and culture tends to give you that whole sense of belonging and being that yet you are being seen as a human who's going to be you know, trained and who's going to be taken as a one and taken as own as going to be, you know, put into the right place and allowed to grow, isn't it? I mean, what do you think about people and culture? Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know if I'm a trailblazer or I'm just a rebel, but for the last decade, any organization I'm in, I've changed out the term supervisor for people leader. Absolutely. That's because the, of the, yes. the same thing you're talking about, because the connotation of I supervise, I manage, it tears down the relationship. It tears down the trust. It doesn't make people feel like they're connected. Now, there's leadership and there's management, and I talk about that in a lot of different texts and contexts and conferences I speak at. But at the end of the day, we're leading people, right? That's what we're doing, and we're developing that culture. You know, if you have 100 people and 20 leave and 20 new people come in, you have a whole new culture. Culture is not consistent. Culture does not sustain the same. It's an ever-living, evolving thing based on the people in the organization. And so I love the idea of people and culture, people leadership. Um, I've seen some really unique titles, although I've seen some that get a little too crazy and you can kind of go, all right, but then who takes care of HR? So you still need it to kind of connect to people. Um, but at the same time, I, I agree with you. I think, um, you know, it's the same evolution that Sharon went through. So you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, they were called personnel. They were viewed to personnel. Go get your check from personnel. And then it was like, well, human resources and the human capital, who takes care of that? Okay, HR people. But now we're realizing it's really those people leaders, culture, diversity, all inclusive environments by true people leaders who happen to have skills in the areas we're talking about, right? That's all it is. Good I people think- leaders that also have skills. I think the words like inclusion, connection, people leader, people leader, uh, not only are, is the connotation very important, as you said, to bring that idea of belongingness, but I think understanding what motivates the people in your organization is critical to finding the right balance to achieve your goals, as you've said. And I think this belonging, inclusion, and connotation goes a long way in keeping the staff motivated because that connection comes in. And this brings me to my next question. Why should school leaders pay attention to staff motivational factors? And how does this impact effective engagement? Sure. Now, so, you know, in in organizations that I work in, whether they have performance management programs or not, I always touch on the fact of how do you interact with your people? How frequently? And I'm sure you've heard or read where, you know, years ago it was like you had your annual review. Once a year, you meet with somebody, have some crazy review, and it was worthless because they say, oh, you were terrible back eight months ago. Like, what? 
But to me, the, the engagement comes from regular and periodic interaction. And that regular and periodic interaction should kind of be two pieces, right? One piece needs to be focused on the technical expertise or the proficiency or the performance of the employee. And the other piece should be on who that person is. What is their professional development? What do they need? Well, if you have those conversations, and I always recommend every at least biweekly, uh, you know, because biweekly means they don't have to be as long, more frequently means shorter meetings, which everyone loves. But when you interact with your employee and vice versa, when you take control and own your development with your people leader, it's important that they they learn what truly motivates you. So you've got your extrinsic motivators and you've got your intrinsic motivators. The the normal mindset is of a business and an organization is throw them money, throw them a bonus, tease them with the carrot, right? Throw something out there and that person's going to do more. And um, in the sales role, that works pretty effectively because by nature, people who love selling, love goals, love competition. But in academic and pharma and other organizations, industries I've had, especially when you have highly um, educated PhDs and other types of skill sets out there, money isn't always the motivator. You know, I learned in the pharma world, a lot of times they just want to be part of creating some drug or solution to help save lives, right? So it wasn't the money that motivated. So I did a lot of research and really spent time over my career focusing on learning from your employee what motivates them. You know, that extrinsic is what we can do for them and we're assuming that they like it, right? It's outside of that person. But how do you, without the the interaction on reviews, without the one-on-one conversations, you may never learn that that person loves to have some kind of social impact, right? Or maybe cultural impact. Maybe they love developing people. Maybe they love uh, just research and knowledge. Maybe what's most important to them is having life-work balance for their children, right? And, and whatever that is, if you don't learn it, you could have a mismatch between how you try to motivate your employees and what actually will either motivate them or turn them off to leave. And so if you can match up and align what are your employees really looking for? Build your recognition programs, build your training, build your professional development to address a wider audience, not just assume everybody's extrinsic. Address a wider audience where there's optional ways for a people leader to reward that employee. Then next thing you know, there's more trust and then it's more engaging. A person who trusts their people leader, they always say the term, they'll run through walls for you. They'll jump off a mountain for you, right? Well, that person builds trust and they believe that people leader will do what's best for their professional growth, that they actually truly genuinely care about them. Well, when you do that, it's easy to ask somebody to go and do this work, execute that, change perspective, whatever it may be. So you engage and it becomes a relationship where it's mutually beneficial. Again, that symbiotic relationship, people are more likely to stay loyal. People are more uh, likely to promote new ideas, bring ideas, improvements, um, and just stay really engaged with the workforce. You know, we do this in you know, some organizations I've had to go in and we had bonus programs, we had incentive compensation programs, we had peer-to-peer recognition, we had tuition and professional development opportunities, we put in mentor programs, we had paid time off or flexible scheduling, right? All these things that were, were designed as like that toolbox for a people leader to go, oh, this woman needs a, a bonus, but this gentleman wants more time off, but this person wants to go take a class. They're not all the same, right? All of our employees are unique. And if you want to have that inclusiveness, you have to have a diverse toolbox that allows you to reward them all and get them all engaged. So that's kind of how I I, I leverage the various uh, concepts and constructs around 
intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and how I tie it together to engagement. But again, goes back to that leadership question and having a seat at the table, right? If you go into an organization, say, oh, you know what? You have unhappy people, give them all raises. That's not that strategic person who knows how to add value at the table, right? So it's these other strategies, really digging deeper to address these these concerns. But hopefully that answered your question. I think uh, very interesting because uh, if we do not, if the leaders do not know their people it and they would just want to have the same parameter for everyone, it will be like, like that old saying that you expect a fish to climb a tree, then you know you will end up it thinking that it's a dud for life, isn't it? And it's not good. It's not, it's not of any good, you know. And whatever it's doing, right. it will not do that properly as well, isn't it? Well, there's a reason why there's chocolate and vanilla. <laughs> there's a reason why there's multiple flavors, exactly. right? There, 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 there's a reason why there's fruit and vegetable. I mean, it's just you know, it's it's interesting if you just walk up to any employee and say, "Do you like red or blue more?" If the answer is not always the same, you better think about how that impacts everything you do with your workforce and different stages. You know, I mean, we talk about inclusiveness and we talk about diversity all the time of how you engage your employees and the motivation factors. But, you know, everybody learns at a different cycle. Everybody's at a different part of their life. So if you also don't have this regular interaction, so let's say you you and I, you were my you were my people leader, I'm working with you, and I'm early in my career. So I just got out of school and you gave me an opportunity. Well, if you keep treating me that way two years from now when I get married, and then four years from now when I have my first child, and then when I have the second one, oops, wait, twins, third one, and then now <laughs> I need to travel. Oh, my wife needs benefit. Like if you don't really watch the human evolution of the people you're working with. You, you, there's a huge miss there. There's a huge disconnect. Even just recognizing, you know, I've been in organizations where they've been around a long time. I had one law firm that was over 100 years. They had an aging workforce and they weren't planning for one, how do you transition over? And two, how do you help them leave the workforce, right? Just how do you help people retiring? How do you do? You're missing it. So that's why the constant interaction from a people leader, the constant strategy and training from HR. Of the, of the leadership of an organization, because five years from now, your whole workforce is in a different place in their lives. You still need them to do the same work and same jobs, but where are they at in their lives and what are their needs that are changing? You know, if you think about retirement planning or financial planning for the future, if I go in an organization that's primarily young college grads, no one's saving any money. They think they're going to live forever and they don't need it. <laughs> and you talk to the to people of an older generation and they're like, where's our money? Where's our savings? What is the what does the organization need and what will motivate them? And it changes. That's the bigger key because it changes through their career. Change is the only constant that is rightly said. And I think uh, the succession plan and exit interviews are two things which I think very important for leaders and schools to, you know, keep in mind. And and this brings me to, even though it's the la one of the, uh, you know, closing last questions to the last question, but I think it's very important. Uh, yes, the, the teachers, the staff and infrastructure, students, everything is a very important part of the school and, and education and things to go on. But I think uh, the people and culture or the HR, as we may call it, is has its own critical role as the ROI, the return of investment, as they call it. So uh, your, your final thoughts on how critical it is for school leaders to understand the ROI of the HR or the people and culture. Of course. 
So ROI, it, it's kind of like asking someone in marketing to say, how much did we make based on your marketing? It's kind of a very challenging, difficult topic, right? It's, it's almost not like a one-to-one -one relationship, like I sold four items and here was the price. Um, HR and people leaders have been doing a really good job over the years of trying to get better and better at demonstrating this. And the way I've always looked at ROI is I will ask a, 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 a leader of a school, a leader of a business to tell me, what are their most critical factors to success? And they might say, okay, well, we need more students. We need better learning outcomes. We need better professors. We need to differentiate in the market. Like whatever those things are, they'll tell me. And I'll say, well, how historically has HR done that for you? And they'll say something like, HR has nothing to do with that. I'll say, really? May I show you how it does, right? And so let's just take the simplest one. We want better learning outcomes for our students. And I'll say, well, have you measured the current outcomes? Have you measured the teachers and professors who are delivering the work? Have you given the training and develop they need so that we can raise those scores or have better outcomes? Have you hired the best teachers and professors, right? So all these things might have been going on in their head, but until they can connect the dots that having better HR practices and strategies actually will impact the goals that they historically didn't view were touched by HR. So I need better staff. Okay, well, is that better training or better hiring? You know, I want better learning outcomes. Okay, is that better curriculum through training and development or implementing a strategy? I, you know, we have high turnover and we don't have students that want to come back because the professors are gone. Well, what are you doing with your benefits and programs to retain staff? So They've never really, not, I won't say never, but historically, most organizations didn't go to HR to solve what they thought were just business problems. The good HR strategist who has the seat at the table and earns it is able to say, that's related to a people issue. That's related to a people issue. And let me show you how, right? Well, even if it's just profitability, let's take in a school, you know, you want more students raise the bar because you're going to differentiate. You're going to have the greatest teachers. You're going to have the greatest outcomes. You know, if you take it even to a business world and they say, you know, we need to do better. Well, if we have the best product, that means you need the best R&D people. You need the best training development. If you want the best productivity, you need happy employees. If you want the best teachers who want to do the best work, they have to feel supported and engaged. So all these little people things and inclusion, engagement, they generally don't come by, they're not usually natural with the business execution, right? The folks that are charged with the skill sets to execute the business and the school's goals aren't generally thinking in terms of the people. And that's where we tie it together. And that's how you get that return on investment of, wait, I might spend X amount on this HR person, but they added another 100 students last year. They kept two of these professors. We have people that are happier. They seem to be more engaged. We're not having the turnover. We can put a dollar amount on all of those end results that demonstrate improve the ROI from the people leadership and the people and culture. Uh, well, I think uh, absolutely. I think it's also vital to have the right people in the right place to be able to execute all the things which you mentioned and uh, the right butts on the right seats <laughs> absolutely and with the right weight so that they know what they're doing isn't it so yes. the, and and uh, now Vern, with your permission to conclude i would want to read a few lines from the chapter and sure. it says human resources is the systematic execution of policies processes and procedures 
that maximize the efficiency and effectiveness of your school workforce. These facilities or these facilitate your educational outcomes and where relevant profitability when staff are qualified, secure and informed in what they do, well-trained and appropriately motivated. HR help minimize the risk and liability of your school. International schools require significant investment in their people and human resources in order to facilitate their educational outcomes for students and for staff to reach their potential and add value to the school. Ladies and gentlemen, human resources needs, definitely needs a seat at the table of leadership in our international schools. I think uh, listeners would agree that this has been a very, very, for me, it has been a very, very in-depth and uh, an enlightening conversation with Warren. And uh, I think before I say thank you, I would like to share with my leaders uh, and my listeners that in our next episode, episode four, just a small hint, and let I let the mystery remain. The small hint that then our next guest is going to be from the subcontinent. So the guess is yours. And we'll see you next time. But before that, thank you so much, Warren, for having giving us such wonderful insights. I'm sure human resources or people and culture and the leadership across the world will be able to have a much better human and school development listening to all this, whatever we talk today. With this, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude today's episode. This is your host, Vika, signing off. And please... Once this episode is released on our website, leadingyourinternationalschool.com, do go, go and have a listen and do share your feedback on the website. And once again, the book is now out, Leading Your International School, available on Amazon and our website itself. Thank you so much. Until we meet again, take care and bye-bye.